Hello, welcome to the Squiggly Animation Podcast. In this episode, we meet Sergio Pablos, director of Klaus. Hello, everyone. Ben Mitchell here. Hello, Steve. Ben Mitchell here. Hello, Ben Mitchell here. Steve here. How are you doing? I'm not too bad, mate. Not too bad. Uh, I'm recovering after uh, a week of animation mayhem from, uh, from Manchester Animation Festival. How's it going in the Ben household? Likewise, I would say. I suppose we have different things to recover from. Well, there's an overlap. <laughs> <laughs> Certainly on the last night. I had a really good week. You feeling happy about it? Yeah, really happy. Uh, you know, I think loads of people said they enjoyed it, so that's the main thing, really, you know. Um, how, how you, how's your head? Uh, which one are you? Are you Barry Gibb? Is that what we decided? Yeah, whichever one um, has the most impressive beard, yeah. I suppose. <laughs> uh, did you get sent to the video? I did indeed, yeah. Aaron uh, or um, Morris sent me the, uh, I think it was, I don't think it was called Morris, wasn't it? Uh, sent me the video of uh, of us doing karaoke at the closing night party. And we decided the, the three squiggly boys, which band with three members in, would best suit us. So we went for the Bee Gees. I think it was a perfect fit. I do as well. I think everyone was in quiet awe. <laughs> Like the the type of quiet awe that could be confused with awkward discomfort. Or even horror. (laughs) Yeah, that was an experience. I hadn't realized that the karaoke room was five foot squared. (laughs) And every, literally everyone who was still standing would cram themselves into it. I think when a when a small well basically a phone box with twenty people in it are bouncing up and down to postman Pat and Bob the Builder at two AM, I think you know that people have had a good time. I think that's where that's where you are with it. Well, it's all over now. Boo Rest respite and then it all begins again. It certainly does. I've got to post out the awards. We've got loads of awards in the house. People didn't turn up to the award ceremony. Boo. They never do. It's it's really inconsiderate <laughs> of them. Yeah, well, we, we we make a we make a point of making sure that it is the that they are actually fair the awards, and it's not just the people that turn up to the festival that get the awards. What? Never mind. Uh, it, it's <laughs> we're very fair with our awards, Ben. As you know, we have to make sure that it's uh, that I have to spend ages posting off awards after the after the festival. Um, what do you make of the winners? I enjoyed an awful lot of what I saw. At the mm. festival, like there was a lot of really good short films. I have some. There were some interesting things that um, it would be good to chat about. Let's have a little look at them. Oh, yeah, so this girl in the hallway, that one, mm. it was a very naive or faux naive cutout animation style that was often quite clunky and ugly. But I think that that had a pretty good function as far as reflecting. The clunky, ugly world that we live in, and the horrible things that happen. Mm. So you know, it was it was overall an, an interesting, quite effective piece. And there was a, a borderline. The Farnham short was good. That's a very, that's a, a very uh, powerful film. Um, I I was quite um, I was quite taken aback the first time I saw that film. And what's the best way of describing this? It's unusual to see a film of this quality coming out of universities now when I, when I say quality i mean the qualities of this film are obviously it's it's stance it's message and there seems to be a, a pattern for for student films where uh they're quite indulgent and this is not a this is not blanket coverage for all student films but you see a lot of student films uh, i see a lot of student films you see a lot of student films ben and uh, regardless of or irregardless of skill or or talent or however well these films are put together, there's that they don't seem to go for messages bigger than than themselves, do they? They don't tend to go for anything as politically charged as this. And so it's really refreshing when you see somebody like Megan Earls um, creating a film like Borderline. It's a much more sincere, reflective piece. And it's interesting, you know, it's, it's obviously it's not an issue that 
someone like me sort of rubs up against. You know, I know people who go through it, but I don't obviously know the first-hand experience of it. And I think that when you have something that is a very kind of, you know, it's laying out a lot of internal feelings and thoughts and reflections on a pretty awful scenario, or certainly a, a scenario that isn't made easy by geographical circumstances and whatnot. Mm. I always find that kind of interesting because it's very much outside of my my world. So yeah, uh, best commissioned film. I did like this one as well. The um, the dementia vision film. The do you do I see what you see? Because mm-hmm. that was a phenomenon I didn't really know about. Like I know a lot of kind of physical eye issues and the kind of visual. Uh, fluctuations and uh, degradations that come with them, but I wasn't really aware of this particular form of dementia and how that kind of affects visual perception, that kind of thing. Mm. That was another interesting one as far as like stuff that is not remotely something I I have experienced or know about. It was a great way of learning about it. It's a powerful film, isn't it? When you when you think about a commissioned film, you think about you think about an interstitial or you think about a music video or you think about something that might be considered, uh, I don't want to say frivolous, but you know where I'm getting at, Ben. You don't think of something that can really have an effect like this. And I'd never really heard of uh, PCA before. And I was absolutely fascinated throughout. It's an absolutely wonderful way of explaining such a rare and, uh, uh, and and challenging form of dementia. And, you know, when you go away educated, Ben, I think that's the power of animation, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Highly educated. Uh, special mention went to Accents there as well, which I think is really worth mentioning, because I really love that film. Yeah, I thought that was really nice. I, um, As I'm sure you know, I'm a big fan of uh, Robertino's work. That one was just very charming, I think. Mm-hmm. He's a great sort of non-fiction animation visualizer. Like, he has a great process for finding the right way to sort of visualize a narration. Mm. I imagine he might be a bit synesthetic, because people like that tend to just have a bit of a gift for creating really sort of compelling animated visuals for anecdotal narration, that kind of thing. Thomas Schroeder is also very good at that, and... It's something mm. I'd like to be able to to do, but I'm my synesthesia is just kind of like useless when it comes to animation. Like I'll hear music and I'll be like, "Oh, this tastes salty." Really? Yeah, I have a my. It's like it's taste in color and sound for me. But that the, the actual at, you you get a salty taste in your mouth. You, you, it's not sort of something you consider. It's more of a association. I think mm. it's more like, "Oh, this sound is a savory sound, and this sound is a sweet sound." So what was the karaoke? <laughs> that was a kebab. <laughs> with a, a lot of brown lettuce. That's what I was thinking of as well, Ben. <laughs> well, we were doing karaoke at 2am. I saw that Robert Eno was uh, signed to Nexus recently, which is uh, good for both of them. Mm, very good. I didn't get a chance to see Gymnasia, but that looks like great fun. It is. It's a very... Uh, well, I've, I've not seen anything like it. Obviously, you know the uh, uh, the guys that have uh, that, that have done the film, uh, Chris Lavis and uh, Masiek Zabowski. Um, the guys who did uh, Madame Tootley Pootley uh, is is just very. Uh, I don't use the word creepy, but it is the best descriptor. You're in this ancient gym hall. You, you've, uh, but the weird thing about VR and stop motion is, you're actually placed in there and. And it's watching stop motion from a different perspective. Because when you watch stop motion as a viewer on a screen, scale doesn't matter. Mm-hmm. But when you're watching it in VR, I, I feel like you've been like I've been shrunk. <laughs> okay. And so when the creepy stuff happens, it's even creepier. <laughs> you know? <laughs> uh, but it's, yeah, it's really, it's a wonderful film. And horror, uh, stop motion horror, it's been described as... Uh, and yeah, it does deliver on that. It's it's great, absolutely great. Very unsettling, and uh, very very well done. They're very good at that. They even things that are kind of you would think shouldn't be unsettling. Yeah, <laughs> they kind of like that um, higgledy piggledy pop 
which is a mostly live action puppetry film, but it was, I think, the first major thing they did after Madame Tootly Pootly. And that just feels like a a, a bad dream. <laughs> like mm. there's, there's something about it that's really like, ugh. <laughs> yeah. Um, and then uh, Koshima, which I think is French for nightmare. And that felt like a nightmare too. That was like a, a Lars von Trier doing a Muppet movie. <laughs> I like their little pigeon films as well. The, mm. Those are more just, I guess, just kind of like goofy comedy. It's a shame I didn't get time to check it out, but it uh, looks like a lot of fun. There's another NFB director doing VR stop motion, and I'm looking forward to that too. That's, uh, I imagine, going to be batshit, because she's she's, she does some odd films. Her name is uh, Frances McKenzie, mm. and um, she was showing us like some of her concepts and you know, sort of thought processes for coming up with ideas and things. And um, I don't know what the state of that is. It was a, about a year and a half ago that we caught up with her, but that's one I'm looking forward to as well. Fantastic. What else? One things. Uh, Audience Award went to Travel Oregon, only slightly more exaggerated. So this is the award that the, the audience selected. You can see the advertising agency going into the animation studio with a big pile of uh, Studio Ghibli DVDs and saying, do that, but for Oregon. Yeah. And they delivered. Well, they certainly did in terms of technically replicating a very dense and sophisticated style of animation and environment and uh, all sorts of things. I guess I wasn't surprised that it won an audience award seeing it. Like, okay, well, they're, you know, obviously this is reminiscent of something that a lot of the audience is going to be very fond of. But I don't know, I, I think by being sort of as adventurous as it was, it kind of lacked a sense of adventure. And mm. that they were kind of like, okay, this is a version of this from this film and a version of that from that film. And we're going to kind of smush them together. So it was a very well-rendered homage to a lot of that studio's output. But I don't know, it didn't really do much for me. Mm. If it gets some people to go to Oregon, then uh, they've done their job. Fair play to them. I mean, elsewhere, sort of outside of the awards, there was a lot of like film work that I really, really enjoyed from the sort of various screenings I was able to get to. Some of them were like retrospective, so it was seeing films again. I really enjoyed the Tricky Women screening because mm. that was a very well put together uh, selection, and seeing certain films again. Well, that's interesting. I feel like one of them they didn't actually play, looking at the uh, lineup here. Which one was it? I don't think they screened uh, 4 minutes 15 in The Developer. All right. Yeah, unless there were two. All right, everybody, back to home. Come on, let's go back. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it was great to see uh, The Burden again, and uh, Percy's a lot of fun. Mm. As far as like films that I hadn't seen before, one that I was a little kind of ambivalent about was the new A Town Called Panic film. Okay. Not because of the film itself, but I don't know if you were aware of this or stuck around or if this was what they submitted. I did notice during the awards when they were showing clips for stuff that was eligible, mm. they showed a clip from this film. It's called The County Fair. And for people who maybe don't know what A Town Called Panic is, it's this quite long-running series of French short films, and they did a feature-length film at one point, and they've done various like TV special-length ones over the years. They're, they're very funny. They're very charming. They're not badly made, but they're made with very rudimentary like kids' toys mm. that are kind of swapped around in a sort of almost very roughshod George Powell-esque style like, it's like replacement animation, but without stuff that's been constructed for that, just by, like, taking a bunch of toys and alternating them. So there's the toy horse and the toy cowboy and the toy Indian, and they live together, and they go on all sorts of wacky, surreal adventures. We we, do, we had the Cravendale adverts in the UK, didn't we, which were... I don't know if they were done by Beast Animation. Do you remember them? It, it was an advert for Cravendale, but it was exactly the same, but instead of a horse, it was a cow. Okay. Yeah. That's ringing a bell, actually, yeah. But yeah, so it's, it's you know, I mean, there's plenty of stuff to to find online. And um, there were some of them that were on an Ardman DVD at one point. Mm. So there was some connection there. Um, now, I remember, because they're French, so th when I've seen them, it's been in French with English subtitles. I think the French voices are funny. Um, 
I think the you know the the, the horse especially and um, sometimes something being in another language makes absurdism funnier. Mm. If that makes sense, um, yeah. I think on the Ardman DVD they were dubbed into English with British actors. Now, for this film, it was also the version that was shown in the screening was also dubbed into English, mm. but with American voices, like American accents, yeah. and it f- killed it. It 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 ruined the the charm of the film. And it was a real shame because as soon as I saw the clip of it at the award ceremony in French, yeah, that was okay. Well, this is you know this is funny again, but it w- it wasn't so much that the dialogue was bad or the story was bad. It was a good film. It fits perfectly into you know the filmography of this series of these people. It was that they were doing these really broad, goofy preschool type voices. So the horse kind of sounds like this now. It's a very kind of Barney the Dinosaur. Oh my god, the cowboy and the Indian. What have you done now? And it's like, shut the f*** up. (laughs) (laughs) The horse is made to sound like this. No, the cowboy Indian. You know, that's the the horse's character. Mexican? This could get a bit problematic. (laughs) I was about to say that. Sorry. But you know what I mean? Yeah. yeah. It it was a very specific characterization Mm. that wasn't present at all. And the other two characters are just shrill, screechy, like... And I think in, in like, maybe one of them did have an American accent in the other English-dubbed version, I remember. Yeah. But I think the other one was Northern. Like, it just sort of worked. Like, there was a kind of regional variety, I think, to the, the characters. Whereas this was just, they were all just cut from the exact same cloth of goofy, wacky American accent cartoon character, mm. which to me felt a lot at odds with the general humor of those films. So I'm kind of, I mean, I was intrigued by it. I'm not sure when they started doing that or if they've always been doing that for the American market, but. Well, it's, it's, it's fascinating. You know, what we get, what we get presented obviously is when when we ask for the clips, they send us the original clips, but then when they send the DCP through, they send the, oh, it's in the UK. Okay. So we'll send the the dubbed version. Uh, And yeah, obviously they play the films a lot at Anima uh, over in Belgium. So that's where the, that's where the From Beast animation uh, and it's really entertaining seeing it in the original, in the original form, you know, in the original language. Mm. Uh, I don't know. Maybe, maybe the the English dubbed one works really well in Belgium. I don't know. <laughs> you know maybe they'll play maybe. it. Everyone's like, "Oh, look at these silly voices!" <laughs> you know, <laughs> oh, the, the 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 original language one doesn't work quite so well. You know, who knows? But it's an interesting question, isn't it? The idea that we're getting a, a layer of extra kind of humour through this kind of translation. Interesting. And how much it changes the experience. Mm. I quite like Patrick Smith's new film. Yeah. It was, it was very un-Patrick Smithy. He's done a few of them. He's done a few. He's done, uh, based on this kind of Paul Bush-esque kind of look. Obviously, Patrick Smith, he's he's a, he's a not collaborator, but really close friends with uh, Bill Plimpton. And the work that he produces is often of a kind of cartoony nature. He does a lot with uh, metamorphosis, doesn't he? In the kind of uh, one of the one of my um, favourite films of his, I think Patrick Smith's film was just about making its way onto the internet at the same time as uh, stuff like stuff like you know uh, Plimpton and uh, the mo- uh, you know I don't want to say his name, you know the the guy who did Ren and Stimpy or did bits of Ren and Stimpy. Um, and like Joe Cartoon and Weeble and stuff like that. So I'm at college watching stuff on the computer, and this this film comes on called Handshake, or uh, and it it was just incredible just to see that you know a full animation, actual you know, look like it'd been done with paper and pencil, can make its way onto the internet. And uh, I'll remember that film. It's a you know a pretty amazing uh, film in terms of the way that the characters blend together and morph and things like that. Uh, but this film's completely different, isn't it? Yeah, like you say, very much reminiscent of um, Paul Bush. I think a lot more structurally successful mm. as a film than you know other people who have spearheaded this particular type of animation. I just thought in its simplicity, it just worked very well as a film. Mm. Morphing animation by taking you know multiple images of drug paraphernalia and uh, American candies. 
using them in a sort of stop motion way that your eye kind of picks up on characteristics that are the same so it's like you're watching this one object that's constantly morphing and shifting and shimmering mm. so that was called candy shop i enjoyed that oh here's another film that uh, i hadn't actually seen before i really love traces um by hugo frasetto mm. and sophie yeah Messian. yeah that and, one um, that one that one burst off the screen when i was going through when we were going through them for the um uh pre-selection i thought it was absolutely spellbounding i was i was delighted by it then there's you know quite a few films that we've done some recent coverage on my my mind mm. um which went down very well i think that probably got one of the biggest responses from the audiences yeah um uh, memorable which you know it wrecks me <laughs> <laughs> oh and cold sore which we had on the <laughs> podcast not that long ago short and sweet and well not especially sweet but uh <laughs> it's fun that was played in the bar wasn't it it was yeah we had the yeah. uh mafter dark screening and then of course there were the squiggly events mm-hmm. which uh, i would say went down rather well the screening was very well attended really responsive crowd people seemed to dig them uh there's quite a bit of squiggly coverage on the uh, directors who were involved in that mm-hmm. and there'll be some more as well but yeah in the meantime you can look up some interviews with eve parody Aaron Kim, Sam Shaw, of course, Lauren Orm, who made Creepy Pasta Salad, was a guest on the podcast a couple of episodes ago, and she was also part of the Encounters podcast. And then uh, Imgi and Sina, their film was great. That film, I think, um, got a lot of tongues wagging, mm. which is always uh, good. They did a film called uh, Hashtag 21XOXO. So, yes, we can buy Squiggly to find out some info on those films. I'm glad you got Revenge Story in there as well. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but, and then of course the squiggly quiz was a civil and uh, <laughs> very quiet way to uh, to conclude the day's events. I felt. Yeah, I, there's no way in hell that I'm doing that maths round again. <laughs> oh, the, yeah, the, the, the focusing an animation quiz round on doing sums. <laughs> I don't think. Uh, I mean, that's the thing with like pub quizzes in general. It's not about doing well. It's about doing better. Yeah. Than other people. So everyone's kind of equally fucked. It's like, you know, surviving in the jungle. You don't need to outrun the tiger. You just need to outrun the other guy. Yeah. yeah. That's basically <laughs> what the experience of being at a squiggly quiz is. <laughs> yeah. Outrun the other team. And you will get that pack of minions wet wipes or whatever it is. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, it's, it's, I mean, it's good to have this kind of feast of short films, isn't it? Get, get stuck in, you know, we, 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 Sort of limping towards the end of the year, and and uh, the the Afghith Afghith is coming. Um, see how enthusiastic I am, Ben. Award season's on its way. It is indeed. Well, you don't have to talk about it if you don't want to. I won't make you. <laughs> There's recently been an, an article on a on another animation website. Uh, uh, let's call it Bartoon Crew, uh, and. Uh, <laughs> There's been an, uh, I've been I've been delighted. Alex, who was on the podcast uh, when we had the Ardman special a couple of weeks ago, invited me to pick my top five films of the year on Cartoon Brew. So you can go online and look up the top five films of the year from the list of ninety two, ninety three, I think, uh, of films that are contending in for the for the Oscars this year. Uh, short films, I should say. And I've selected my top five, which you can all go online and disagree with. And you can look at everyone else who's selected their top five films as well uh, and disagree with them also. But what surprised me about this isn't the the films themselves that were selected or the films that were on the list. It's just the sheer volume of American films on this list. And it really kind of gave me an understanding as to how these things work or how kind of LA-centric the Oscars actually is because here we are Ben we've just been speaking for for ages as we do after encounters as we do after Annecy as we do after a major animation festival about these films that we've seen and we interview many animators throughout the year on the site and yet you see this Oscars list and it is very very um, uh, American and films I've never heard of films I've never seen but films that when I give them a quick little search on, on Google, they're there and 
you can you can either watch them or you can see a poster for it or something like that. And there's no access to it. And I just I'm looking at all these films from the US and thinking, why aren't these being embraced by the European animation circuit? Why aren't these being submitted to European animation festivals? Why aren't these being shared more? Are these just uh, career films? Are these just films that are created by the creators? This might be a very cynical way of looking at it, but these just films that are made by uh, people who work in LA, exhibited in LA, and then they can say, I'm on the Oscar long list. I've made a film. Because that seems, uh, that, is that me being cynical? What do you make of that, Ben? Well, I mean, if it's a strategy, I guess it's working for them. Mm. You know, I mean, everyone has different reasons to make a film. I mean, that's, you know, obviously it's something that we discuss a great deal. Sometimes people just make a film for their own gratification mm. and they keep it to themselves. It's a strange, well, that's it's a really, really lovely stuff that people just haven't really had the energy to put out into the world or it just hasn't mattered that much to them. They just wanted to make it. I sort of feel like if you have a crew together, I would be sort of inclined to make a lot of an effort to, you know, get it seen by as many people as possible yeah. as a sort of validation for them. Like, I make films, and I don't... The idea of, like, submitting a film for the Oscars is sort of ludicrous. But if I... I think a lot of filmmakers would hear that and be like, what are you talking about? I don't understand. Yeah. Well, it's... Like, and it's hard to explain. It's kind of... That sort of, I think, committing to, you know, a very, very specific career path and career aspirations that are not particularly meaningful to me. Mm. But what's meaningful is if I'm at a festival and I'm a film of mine is playing and people are responding warmly to it and people get in touch about it or they, you know, get something out of it. I mean, that's sort of what it's for. It's for making something that people will be entertained by and every once in a blue moon sort of inspired by. Now, you can do that with a big budget and with an agenda to, you know, eventually get an Oscar, but I don't think, for me, that's all packaged together. Yeah. If something ended up, by circumstance, being eligible for something major, then you'd take a punt on it, because why not? But I think I know quite a few people who have been, I think, disheartened and put off making their own films because the film they made or the first couple of films they made didn't become BAFTA eligible. They didn't get into the right festivals or they didn't win the right awards. And to them, that signified, oh, okay, so I failed. Hmm. And I, I'm just like, well, let's, I guess if that's the what it's all about to you, then you did. <laughs> if, if that's your parameters, if that's your criteria for success versus failure, then I guess you're right. Yeah. But... I don't know. It, it seems like putting that before the art is unnecessarily shackling yourself and your creative impulses, and it maybe undermines the sincerity of a person's creative impulses. So I don't think you're being so cynical. But yeah, yeah. Well, no, I'm, I, I think I'm, I'm going to go against what you just said there, Ben. Sorry. I think I might, I might have just bundled these people into the wrong thing. I mean, these these films, the majority of these US films, have been made eligible because they they've exhibited in LA. And a cynical person could say to those people that you just described, then, you know, Ben, why don't we do it for Squiggly? Why don't we put on a Squiggly screen in an L.A., charge people a couple of thousand pounds each to get their film exhibited, and then, hey, presto, you're on this big, long list. What about that, eh? It's not going to happen. Don't don't write in. Uh, but I think these people, persons who I've said uh, are making films to advance their careers, perhaps just because they've landed on this this list by default you know obviously these i'd rather play these guys are more far more likely to be placed in a, a list i'd rather be on as that list that you've described of people who are filmmakers who are doing it for the art and not for the advancement and that they've been exhibited in la because they live in la <laughs> uh, and 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 american animation is very la centric according to this list at least and for that reason they've they've ended up on this long list i was just taken aback by the amount of films that i've not seen on the festival circuit and that's all and it, and it made me question why why are these films are these films being protected is it the distributors that have been overly protected by protective with them is it is it that america doesn't have quite a vibrant festival circuit as europe or 
you know, is is that is that a factor as well? What's what's at play here? Is it that is it is the problem with the Oscars? Yes, the problems with the Oscars. Spoilers. That the fact that their their rules have, uh, prop up the industry over there, the LA uh, industry, and I believe so. And I think that looking at this list right at the very beginning of this tiresome Oscar journey that we always go on, Ben, uh, is is a great indicator as to why people look at the Oscar long list and go, what? I wouldn't have put that in there. I've spent a year going around animation festivals or I went to Annecy and I had a favourite film at Annecy that's not even made the list. You know, and that, that really kind of signifies to me why we get to that point in the year when we look at the Oscar shortlist and scratch our heads. Yeah. Uh, I mean, the proof will be, I guess, in the pudding when it comes to the actual nominations. Mm. You know, there are some films on here that I would absolutely love to, for the sake of the filmmakers, either knowing them or having had known them, or just being fans of the work, you know, I feel it would be very well deserved. Uh, well, there you go. So, uh, yeah, Oscar season is nearly upon us, and uh, we will gamble gaily into that dark ocean when it comes up. <laughs> Going back to math, another... Um, Festival highlight, I would say. Certainly one of the events that people were easily, I think, the most keen on as far as getting a seat and also talking about afterwards was the uh, behind the scenes of Klaus, mm-hmm. which uh, the day after premiered on Netflix. Too much acclaim, and uh, deservedly so. It's a great film. What did you think of the film? Uh, ben, I'm going to surprise you here. Uh, what? I have not seen the film, and I am not going to see the film until I put up my Christmas tree. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I admire a man with principles. Yeah. Um, but uh, I've seen a lot of behind the scenes. I've seen a lot of the... Uh, I've seen a lot of clips, and I've seen a lot from it. So I feel... I feel... Um, I feel qualified enough to, to, to rant on about this film a little bit. <laughs> Uh, we were not allowed to see it before the screening either at MAF. It was tightly under under wraps. Usually we'd get a screener uh, for any of the films that we show at the festival and we do make uh, a big a big point of, of watching these films to make sure that only the best films end up on screen. Uh, but given that we'd seen a lot of behind-the-scenes stuff at Annecy, given that I'd interviewed the... Uh, art department and the director uh, and got to know Sergio Martins um, the uh, animation director for the film I felt it was a pretty safe bet I think Netflix were quite happy with the film as well so I think it was a safe bet to show this film at the festival without seeing it uh, so it's good to <laughs> it's good to know that it was well received and it's been absolutely fantastic seeing how well received it's been it's got a bit of everything mm. yeah. what I found sort of interesting about it was it actually reminded me of, of films I'd seen before, but not films I ever would have expected. Well, I was probably expecting it to be more in a kind of Arthur Christmas vein, mm. which um, is the only other recent animated Christmas feature that I think has really been worth anyone's time. And um, it's not the most beloved film in the world, uh, to be honest, but it's quite good. All things considered, but it's nearly came out nearly ten years ago now, eight years ago, something like that. Mm. It was about time we had another entry. Arthur Christmas surprises me every year. I love it every time I see it. I'm not a Christmassy film type of person, although I'm sure we're going to rant on about Christmas films, and I'll reveal myself to be just that. But yeah, Arthur Christmas is one of those from now. It's one of those must see every year Christmas films. That and Muppets Christmas Carol, which is the ultimate Christmas film. This film actually. It it was more evocative of the kind of late 90s, early 2000s shift in tone that you started to see with, like, Disney movies, and the characterizations in particular. So the main character, Jesper, is very Cusco-esque. Mm. And for people who know or remember The Emperor's New Groove, it kind of spoiled sarcastic, bit of a prick who will, uh, one assumes, learn... You know, a lesson about not being a prick mm. down the line. And interestingly, as the film progresses, some of the interactions, both in terms of the physical animation and the kind of personality dynamics of Jesper and Klaus, who is played by uh, J.K. Simmons um, very well. He's a big, lumbering, 
Santa Claus prototype figure. He's a sort of reclusive hunter in this village that Jesper, the spoiled postman, is sent to. Um, basically, he's being punished for being a slacker and not paying attention in postman school. <laughs> he was, he's there because of nepotism and his family is rich. And so, you know, to learn a lesson and to uh, get a bit more of a personality, he's sent to this completely barren island where all the the occupants are at war with one another. And the challenge is to actually set up a working postal system and get a certain amount of post delivered. And then he'll, his father will start to take him seriously. So the key sort of inciting incident that gets that off the ground is him encountering this reclusive hunter who is basically going to be the Santa Claus of this village. And that kind of dynamic was also quite Emperor's New Groovy. It was quite similar to certainly a lot of the kind of like madcap chase scenes and navigating treacherous terrain, you know, with mm. one skinny character and one big lumbering character that was very similar to the John Goodman character in um, Emperor's New Groove, who I forget the name. But that was a dynamic that kept popping into my head throughout this film. Mm. I would say it's generally a, a better film than that. Like, I enjoyed that film. It wasn't a particularly liked film, but I, I think this film is more successful insofar as it just kind of covers everything you want from a film that deals with this subject at this time of year. Yeah. And obviously it's absolutely gorgeous to look at. And there's an enormous amount of, you know, material out there as far as, you know, seeing clips and trailers and there's lots of behind the scenes vignettes. And I would, I would, you know, recommend checking all of them out because it's a fascinating process. It's a nice cocktail of approaches that uh, they worked out to get this really atmospheric, solid world. It's a very concrete world, you know, mm. not literally. It just it holds together very well. And just some of the, the stills you could take just of the environments alone um, are absolutely magnificent. There's a shot of the forest right toward the end. I won't say what happens because it's quite a crucial part of the ending. But basically, it's a shot of an empty forest, and it lingers on it for a bit. And it's just such a gorgeously composed image. So yeah, I mean, we uh, we watched it last night. We were uh, we were bowled over by it, but it was tremendous. It, it it is. I mean, just the way it looks. You can look at these stills and everything. And they've recently just released the the art of book. But I, I'm I'm not entirely sure how much you'd need the art of book because the main goal of the film is to make sure that every image on screen does look as as beautiful as the work from an art of book. When you think about the um, the art of books that we've we've reviewed on the site or given away in the, in the past on the podcast. These kind of the Disney Pixar art of books, which you'll have the likes of um, uh, a Toy Story film, where you'll see the the uh, lighting department have or the the art department have, have designed this how a scene will look using block colors and and you'd look at it going, oh, why can't you just make the entire film like that? Well, this is that film. Yeah. This this is that film. That film has been made to to replicate that kind of the the purest, you know, beautiful form of, of of art. This is the art department on fire, but it's also something of a uh, a, a catch up, or so it's been billed as. Because obviously they do use CG in the film, but they don't use CG on the characters. I'm led to believe. Um, they'll use it for the help of composition or shots or, you know, in a very kind of mechanical sense, they'll use CG uh, and sparingly. But what you get apart from that is a film that has played catch-up for feature animation. It has the characters, when the sunlight's behind them, you can see the light pouring through their ears and bouncing off their face and reflecting in their eyes and casting shadows throughout their their uniform. This isn't just adding shadows to a character and adding highlights to a character. This is so much more than that. This is something that actually looks beautiful, absolutely beautiful, Uh, and it's just stunning to see. Something Laura pointed out when we were watching it, there's a shot where he's sort of backlit in that way, and he's sort of he has a handful of letters, and just the way the letters are lit, mm. like the the degree of of attention to detail with the translucency around the edges of the envelopes and what you can see through, you know, 
Mm. Like, it's it's really a kind of unprecedented level of consideration. Because there's a lot of shorthand in, you know, animation, 2D animation. Historically, sometimes it serves the design very well. But, you know, rendering-wise and, and creating just such a rich environment, it served it enormously well. Mm. And, yeah, I mean... It, I think your description fits what I remember of what I saw. I don't think there was any CG character work. I can picture a couple of CG background tracking shots, you know, things that kind of replicate like drone camera work, that sort of thing. Yeah. There's a rotating scene, which uh, I think Laura said he mentioned at the uh, talk at math, which the character animation isn't CG, but I guess it's a sort of, perhaps a CG rotation of the set, or maybe it was all just rendered in 2D. But that was a f- nightmare, of course, because what's easy to render out in CG, a rotating shot around a table, there's a lot of stuff you have to keep track of if you're doing that in 2D, you know, yeah. even if it's just the characters. And it's it's absolutely seamless, the end result. So, Oh, that's good. I mean, uh, I've been... I mean, do you remember when... Um, oh, an, otherwise, an otherwise flawless film... Uh, in my mind, The Illusionist. Yeah. Uh, when that came out, and I was just delighted to see this, you know, two D film uh, right the way through, and then right at the very end, there's a spinny CG shot of Edinburgh. Yeah. Which big pull out of yeah, obviously is a nice love letter to Edinburgh and all that type of stuff, but it just looks awful in in terms of it, it what they were trying to do with that shot, I believe, was too advanced maybe for what was available at the time or resourced at the time. And it really pulls you out of the film. Yeah, well, that, I think, is is the issue more than the the technological ability of it. Mm. It's that it's completely arbitrary. But, you know, there's nothing like that in Klaus. It's all, you know, all of the... I mean, sometimes there's, like, camera work that's funny. Like, it actually serves the comedy of the film. Or the lighting is funny. Like, there's when he first arrives on this island and, you know, the people are hostile toward him and the children who are quite sinister. And there's a lovely little shot of a little girl kind of disappearing into the mist that becomes very... It's not in and of itself sinister, but the way it's set up in the shot is very sinister and very funny. Mm. So, yeah, there's a lot of stuff like that that uh, works really well. Uh, A lot of great people in the cast... They are names, you know, they're actors, they're not necessarily like people from the world of cartoons so much, but they all do a good job. I would say maybe they could have gotten a bit more out of Joan Cusack. Mm. She is great for everything that she's... But there could have been maybe a bit more of that character. Um, Norm MacDonald is in it as a complete piece of shit. Like, he's... <laughs> I mean, he's a, he's a nice guy, but he's just a really... He's, like, really passive-aggressive and sarcastic and, like, making the main character feel bad. Mm. You know, he's a very endearing character, but he does that very well. And like I said, J.K. Simmons is great. I don't know if he does much voiceover work. I remember he was in Portal, and he was very good in that. Do you know who he is in terms of animation? He's the yellow Eminem. <laughs> Oh, well, there you go. <laughs> yeah, he, him and Billy West. He's the he's the so like when he, when he was on the Oscar thing a few years ago, everyone's like, oh, J.K. Simmons, you know, like, and like I remember this fact come out that he's the voice of the Yellow Eminem, and it's like a gig he's not let go of. <laughs> well, you brilliant. don't want to really. I mean, that's uh, all the M and M's you can eat. Exactly. Yeah, unless you got a peanut allergy. Oh, and he was in a Kung Fu Panda movie. <laughs> well, there you go. As well. Oh, he was in Zootopia. I remember that as well. Ah, yes, yeah, he's the mayor. But he's got one of those voices, hasn't he? He's got one of those... uh, And and when you look at the cast, as you say, somebody like uh, Joan Cusack, who we we know as, you know, Jessie the Cowgirl in the Toy Story films, has a... There's something to her voice. It's not bland. There's something kind of almost tangible to it. Same with J.K. Simmons. Same with all the cast. There's something to these voices that makes them stand out from just sticking a celebrity name in. If you were to, say, have... I don't know. I, I would say, like, you just pick a, a, a random celebrity, somebody like Brad Pitt and George Clooney. You know, I, I don't think either of those guys have a voice that they're big star names, but they don't really have a voice which is, which lends itself so well to, ah, oh, that's definitely Brad Pitt's voice, or that's definitely George Clooney's voice. Mm-hmm. Well, or, or, unless he's been, uh, was it, what was the dog called in uh, South Park? Oh, yeah. Um, Sparky. Yeah. <laughs> Sparky, yeah. Um, 
But yeah, uh, it, it's it's very very well picked cast, and I think that when you are kind of creating a a cast of of stars, let's let's admit uh, for a film like this, you need to make sure that you are getting that the right voices for star quality. Otherwise, you just you're going for star names, and when you when you're on Netflix, there's no point to that, really. Is there? Is there really? Mm. And Rashida Jones was in it, mm. who. I quite like I because she also interesting she co-wrote Toy Story Four. Ah, oh, right. Which did you see Toy Story Four in the end? I did. Yes. Now it was another film that criminally I thought underused Joan Cusack, but mm. it kind of underused all of them. When I was watching, I was like, I think if you combined the amount of like time the non-absolute main characters speak, maybe you'd get five minutes of dialogue. Uh, if you're lucky. Well, the, the fact is that a lot of them were dead as well. That's the shame. You know, um, the guy who voiced Slinky Dog, obviously uh, Don Rickles died right. in the last year, so they were using B-roll, I suppose. What's, what's the... Um, outtakes? What's the, outtakes, sorry, not okay. B-roll. So they're using outtakes from previous sessions that Don Rickles had done to, obviously not sweary outtakes, but stuff that had not <laughs> made the cut in the film. So you'll notice yeah. that when Mr. Potato Head t- speaks in the film, it's never consequential. It's never like, we should get to the antique shop. It's it's always just a sort of Mr. Potato Head line. Interesting. So, yeah. yeah. So basically it's, it's a caravan full of characters that they can't really use, but they decided they wanted to make a film. So And obviously they introduced so many characters in that film as well. Yeah, so many new characters, and so you've got to give those guys screen time as well, and then obviously make it about returning characters and everything else. So it's a difficult balance. So you can tell why they just locked them in, the, <laughs> literally, yeah. literally locked them in the caravan, and gave Jesse a little moment of, you know, saving the day for a little bit. But yeah, not much else. Uh, yeah, criminally underused, perhaps. Yeah, I did find it as a whole. I mean, how did you find the film overall? Ah, uh, Toy Story 4, uh, not as good as Toy Story 3. I think Toy Story 3 was the perfect ending. Yeah, I, I was going to say, I, it, I mean, it's a long time since Toy Story 3 was made. It felt just sort of, I don't know, very dislocated from the others. Mm. And kind of, I liked elements of it quite a lot. I liked the, um, the, the ventriloquist dummies. Yeah. But then, I don't know, maybe there could have been a bit of less is more with them. Like maybe because they end up sort of being a big presence throughout. Mm. Maybe they would have been more effective if not. Yeah, I don't know. It just it's. I think it just seemed very unnecessary overall. That was kind of my main takeaway. It's a great film. It is. Uh, I mean, uh, perhaps the problem with it is that the three that precede it cast such a big shadow. Mm. If this was the fourth Klaus film, and it was <laughs> as as brilliant as as it as it seemingly is. We might be having the same a similar conversation, but I think what they did was they uh, there's a lot there's a lot of things that justify the film, but not as much as I would have hoped for. I think yeah. that's probably the best way of of describing it. But uh, well, for me, best I can come up with anyway. But yeah, it, it's it, it's a good film. It's a very good film. A good film amongst amazing. F- uh, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know <laughs> the, the most polite way to describe it. It's a it's a great film. It's a great film among slightly better than great films. <laughs> so you managed to uh, going back to Klaus. Mm. Uh, you managed to chat with Sergio Pablos. Is that right? That's right. Yeah, Sergio. Fantastic. He's the co-creator of Despicable Me as well. So the first question I asked him was why, 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 <laughs> why did you have to make it so everyone compares me to Gru? <laughs> and, uh, apparently I'm not the first bald man with a big nose to have a go at him about that uh, but I've never made that connection before get away <laughs> <laughs> yeah um, yeah it, it, we, I had a chance to sit down with him in Annecy so uh, as weird as it is talking about a Christmas film I did have sunscreen on when I was <laughs> when I was doing this interview uh, with uh, with Sergio Pablos, it's great to have uh, had a chat with him about the making of Klaus. So yeah, here's Sergio Pablos talking about Klaus. So can you tell us a little bit about your like, how he came up with the initial idea? Yeah, I was interested in, in origin stories. Like I, you know, I was looking for the next thing, looking for what's the next best 
you know, great animated film idea that I can have, you know. But at the time, I was very inspired by origin story because I kept seeing Hollywood doing this thing with like uh, there was like uh, there was a trend at one point with like Batman Begins and Hannibal and uh, Jason and all these you know popular characters that had created like as far as the seventies or sixties and then just become outdated. And I love the idea of like this exercise of taking a, a, a anything. It could be a historical, fictional, literary character that's been, you know, that could be considered to be out of date today and bring it forward to today's world, right? And, um, and I made a list of the you know, possible things. One in the list was Santa Claus, and I wasn't interested. In I was like, nah, that's not what I'm looking for. I want something cool, right? <laughs> so, so Santa was not cool, but I just kept thinking, weird that Santa doesn't have an origin story, right? That is, so I, I, I put this thing together and I tried to, uh, most as, as an exercise, I tried to see how would it be if I had to do it, how would it look like? And usually it's about finding the irony, you know? And the irony in this story was what if everything that's great and good about Santa came about through the actions of the biggest asshole you can imagine? <laughs> <laughs> so, so that was, and usually when you find the irony, you find the story happening on the speak of me. Find, like you have ideas floating in your mind, and then that statement, like the one I just gave you, you know, is what says, "Oh, I can work with that, right?" And of course, that's just um, an engine. You still need a heart. You still need all those things. But, but that's the moment where you you go from having a notion to having a story. Does that make sense? Yeah. Right. And so we we find Santa Claus in this. Sorry, I beg your pardon. We find Klaus in this story. Right. Um, uh, you don't use the word Santa. No. No. Purposely. Yeah. Yeah. We find this character who uh, is perhaps the the opposite of, of Santa. Uh, he is a bit of a recluse. Right. He has a workshop. He feels perhaps that the uh, his best days are behind him. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And yes. then he's introduced to the main character of the story. Right. We perceive uh, Klaus, and by the way, Klaus is because St. Nicholas, Nicholas, Klaus is just you know, kind of like, uh, um, you know, superheroes were not quite their, the final outfit, the first one they have, you know, it's kind of like that, you know, so a lot of that uh, fan service, and uh, I often compare this to like, uh, we're doing for kids the same thing that uh, you know, Disney's doing for Star Wars. Like they show stuff that they recognize and they go, I know that, you know. So a lot of the appeal of the film is, is about children discovering those things and, and adults as well, hopefully. But yeah, so so we perceive Klaus to be as of Jesper and, and the way he perceives him is like a scary woodsman who's very recluse. But then later on we'll find out that there's actually a, a very tragic deep story that provoked his reclusion and all that, right? So but I don't want to give away but basically it's more about perception but I definitely didn't want to see, the first time you see Klaus on the screen I don't want to see a jolly guy who's laughing I want to see what's the farthest thing from that because we're going to end with Santa Claus so we know we're going to end we need to give ourselves a path to walk on right? so, fantastic uh, so the film has been exciting animation anoraks since the teaser was released three years ago, four years ago? About three years ago. Yeah. yeah. Uh, a different uh, voice voice cast back then, uh, but uh, the thread that runs through is that, that beautiful visual style. But um, the character that we saw yesterday seems to have completely changed based on that original. Yeah. Uh, uh, can you tell us a little bit about the evolution of the... Yeah. I think, who is it? Is it David Stanton who said... Uh, when it comes to storytelling animation, be wrong as early as possible, right? I think it's I think it's standard. Well, it's a standard piece of but um, but I, I, I believe that will be completely true because you're gonna be thinking this is what the story's about and realizing no it's not about that. We ended with a main character that was supposedly an egotistical person, but then uh, the first pictures of him we were we still wanted to be likable. So we actually ended up not being that much of an the person, right? And then there was nowhere for him to go. The trick was how we make someone who's egotistical and a bit of a dick uh, like. And it came down to uh, 
when we got uh, Jason Schwartzman involved, who was not too familiar. I was, I was aware of him, but I was not too familiar with his work, right? And then he was the one that kind of found that because that's his specialty. I mean, that, that he he's always like, well, no matter what he's doing. And he found the character. He really, it took a few trial and error, right? But then after I recorded with him for a couple of sessions, I said, I know how to write this character now. I can use his take on that, and and that's what it came together. Before that, it was, it was not the start, but a selfish guy who became altruistic. He was already kind of altruistic, so there was no journey for the character, right? Hmm. But Jason was the one that made it happen. He was great. That's that that's that bleak collaborative aspect of animation. Right. Bringing all the different voices in. Oh yeah, that's one of the things. I it's definitely my philosophy. Like I don't care where the ideas come from. Who has them? Who brings them? I'll take the good ones, and I won't take credit for anything that's not mine. But at the end of the day, you know, it's just about we are making the best possible thing we can. You know? And I think we are full not to be open to other people's input. Mm. Uh, so, in terms of the look of the film, we were shown. Uh, clips and examples of uh, where you kept testing your team right. to keep that look right. uh, alive. Um, could you tell us a little bit about how that influenced the uh, the shaping of the film? Was it was it the look that came first and then the story, or was it the story and then the look? It was the story and then the look. Yeah, it was more about like I've been waiting for an idea that clearly wanted to be done in traditional animation, and we never forced it. And we're like, you know, this needs to be 3D, let's let it be 3D. Sometimes you work with ideas that turn out that they want it to be live action. And then you go, oh, I'll put in the live action drawer, that'll never do, because that'll do live action, right? But um, uh, but then when Klaus came about, I was like, this is the one, this wants to be traditional. I don't even know why, I don't know what the rules are, but it felt right. And then we said, okay, but it cannot look just like what we've been doing at the 15 years that we haven't been pushing this thing someone the other said it's not that you took this one step farther it's like you you moved ahead like several steps like well that's because all those years that should have happened in those 15 years <laughs> you know, never happened so we have a lot of catch up to do so we're trying to you know even things like composite things completely different today from what it was the last time we made that video, right so um there's all these things you can do but I also really wanted to make the, the point like this shouldn't be about 2D or 3D. Just get the audience to look at something gorgeous. If we can make this look like a, um, visual development in motion. And if the right way to accomplish that had been through CGI, we probably would have done it. I think because we're people who love to draw and paint, that the shortest path for us is starting from hand-drawn, you know? And I'm sure the people that go from the other end will, will find it easier to arrive at something that's gorgeous to their own path. You know? But we just gotta be true to our nature. We're, we're, if something doesn't look good, we draw it better. That's what we do. We don't program a, you know, a new algorithm to you know, do something, which is just not who we are. Hmm. What do you think you get from this kind of uh, 2D uh, approach that you wouldn't get necessarily from CG? Now, there are certain aspects such as lighting and there's a, um, a textured look to the right. film, which you could argue can be done in, in CG. Oh, you can do that. But there are elements to the 2D aspect of the film, which I'd like to hear I you say. It comes down to the human imperfection. I think that the charm of, of hand-drawn animation has a lot to do with, it's not kind of perfect, that's fine. There's something charming about that. What we did is we took the same imperfection. We developed tools for people that paint the light and the color. So instead of being a kind of paint by numbers process like it was traditional animation, now we have an artist making choices. They're making judgment calls on every step. All oh, the shadows should go here. This looks better and all that. But that, in exchange for appeal, you have imperfection. And and there's something super charming about that. So by extending that imperfection all the way to the pipeline, you have that feeling of handcrafted. That's a lot stronger. I think that's what makes it. Fantastic. So there are a lot of films out where, uh, for example, a, a recent one being Spider-Verse, where a technique will come along and it will excite uh, people into 
wanting to reproduce that particular technique in their own films. Right. And I, I predict that Klaus will be one of those films that people say, can you do a film like Klaus? Would, would, would you advise against that? No, I wouldn't. Because the point we're trying to make, or I would, I should say, I should own this. Uh, the point I was trying to make, to this still viable as a storytelling tool, don't dismiss it. So I, I think it'd be a mistake to try to uh, replicate Klaus. I, I think you could emulate the thinking that led to Klaus, but not the actual result of it. Right? I think just say, oh, that's a new thing now. But I definitely would like for producers and distributors to like say. All right, so how should we do this? And at least consider for a second could this do too? Because right now they're just dismissing it entirely. That that's not a thing anymore. Like you might as well ask them would they consider doing a silent or black and white. That's how they think about it. But I wanted to make a point. Look, this is not a lesser technique. It's a different technique. He has his strengths. You know, he has his weaknesses. If you find the the right content, the right uh, uh, you know story that that benefits from those strengths, you know, you should definitely own it. So, so I would be enchanted if other people went that route, you know. Because I, I do think, uh, I don't expect to the, I'm not trying to make something to it better. I'm just saying, it's not as better or worse, that it should be still be around. That's all I'm saying. <laughs> yeah. So, just because um, people are using watercolors doesn't mean that oil paintings uh, that's right. aren't still kind of sculpture, tell a painter, hey, this is three-dimensional, you should drop that, right? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. <laughs> right. And, and 3D is used sparingly in the film. It isn't. This film isn't being marketed as a deaf-to-3D film, is it? No, no, no. We use, like, we're very pragmatic. Like, there's, there's, um, there's uh, anything that would be painstakingly, you know, uh, to, to, to produce as a drawing, why would we? Why would we do that to ourselves, right? We're not purists. We're just trying to keep the, the, the organic quality where it shows, you know. Things we have this reindeer pulled by five, uh, this, this lake pulled by five reindeers throughout the film. So, of course, those reindeers are going to be pretty generated, you know, and, and they look great. And they found the, the best way to sell shade them so they match perfectly with the. We even have like a comparison with the same shot, 2D and 3D, to see how close we can make them look. And it's like, yeah, they blend, gorgeous, no problem. But um, I, I, I really. Like I said, it's the, the performance of the animators and the charm of the drawing and the mistakes uh, that we want to, to be there. And like I said, not every idea that I come up with will lend itself to it, and that's fine. Mm. So uh, we've got December, November, December to look forward to this year, where we see where we, yeah. where we see Klaus uh, in uh, live in living color. Um, but what's next for uh, SPA Animation? Right. So we are um, going to be pretty exhausted on the clouds, I predict. <laughs> a good rest. <laughs> right. Um, I, we have a lot going on in terms of we're talking about the future. We definitely feel like we want to continue a relationship with Netflix. Yeah, it's been great. I'm working on a new project, but it's much earlier on than where Klaus was when I brought it to them. So, but I also, you know, like I said, I'm somebody who loves to draw. I have a hard time conceiving life without being someone who draws for a living. Directing has kind of pulled me away from that a bit. And I, I think I need to finesse my way of directing so it allows me to contribute to drawing. But in the meantime, now I get to go back and maybe develop properly and get my hands dirty with it a bit. Um, and I think I think I may have found, you know, yet another idea that has brought a pill and yet breaks a few molds and takes a few risks and pushes uh, conception, uh, you know, convention a bit more. And I think that's what's in my mind becoming kind of a mission statement for a company. Like if we have a project that looks like it come out of any other company, then we should do that, right? So. Fantastic. Right. Well, until until the next thing, we've got Klaus to gorge on. So, Sergio Pablos, thank you very much for speaking to Squiggly today. All right, thank you. Thank you. So that was uh, Sergio Pablos, director of Klaus, which is available to watch on Netflix. Perfect film to get you in a Christmassy mood. It is, of course, nearly December, so it's been Christmas time for a good month and a half. <laughs> it has, yeah. Great film. Check it out. Thank you very much to Sergio for uh, chatting with us. And, uh, yeah, I will be back uh, soonish 
for another squiggly podcast before the end of the year an even Christmassier one or at least equally Christmassy we'll see what we can do how can you get Christmassier than this you probably can't actually probably what we've got lined up is slightly less Christmassy okay but uh, I'll, I'll put some sleigh bells in the music at the beginning and it'll seem more like a Christmas episode chef kisses perfect so something to mention before we uh, before we sign off the Russian Film Week Industry Forum is a coming. It's a unique event, bringing together more than 100 experts from Russian and British TV and film industry. This year, it will take place on the 28th and the 29th of November in BFI South Bank as part of the Russian Film Week. Mm-hmm. Here's the good news. If you're a squiggly reader slash squiggly podcast listener, you can get free entry by registering via the site. What? Say what? Check out the uh, article on squiggly.com for the Eventbrite link that will get you free registration for the uh, Russian Film Week Industry Forum. It's Christmas already, Ben. We've given out the presents. Indeed. Yeah, indeed. So that's, uh, that's us done for the year. <laughs> Elsewhere, I don't have anything I think to plug, surprisingly. I usually bloody love waffling on about myself and what I'm up to. But it's a quiet end to the year for me mm. so far. We'll see what the state of things are next podcast. But while you're waiting for news to come from that corner of the world, be sure to keep checking out squiggly.com. It's our website, don't you know? Mm-hmm. We're also on Twitter at squiggly and Instagram at squiggly animation and facebook.com slash squiggly magazine. Follow us on all of them because you need something to offset all the awful toxicity that plagues your social media channels. <laughs> Until next episode, I've been Ben Mitchell, at Ben L. Mitchell on Twitter. Steve has been Steve Henderson, at Mr. Underscore S. Underscore Henderson on Twitter. We will see you all again soon. Until then, happy animating.